So with 2022 seeing the 50th anniversary of the Pride March in London, there could be no better time to celebrate my guest this week and all he's achieved for the LGBTQI plus community. He is the one and only Jack Guinness, writer, model, presenter and founder of the absolutely brilliant The Queer Bible. Jack's story is one that I think we're going to all feel that we can relate to because at the heart of it, it's about finding your true self, accepting that and realising it's one of the most amazing rides that we're going to ever experience. And Jack's using this found sense of peace within himself to do such amazing work to change the LGBTQ plus landscape for future generations. And it's just so inspiring, done with such humour and grace, I would say, and a killer chisel smile. That was just one of the most wonderful moments. And I really do hope you laugh along with us both. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table. And since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of creative small businesses. And I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to Adobe, who've helped bring this podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi, Jack. What a pleasure it is to meet you. You're in your gorgeous kitchen. Of course, it's a gorgeous kitchen. Is that the one I see on Instagram? The yellow one? It is. I, I don't have a staged Instagram kitchen and then a real <laughs> kitchen. They're, the, they're one and the same. Frigging love your kitchen. I love the material that you've done. Is that sort of born out of the 60s and 70s where they would have material covering some shelves? No, there's no material covering the shelves. Oh my God, so you know, so there you go. You're hallucinating. No, I, that is you on some exotic, gorgeous holiday oh, that was also yellow. Wait, it's funny you should say that. That is my Instagram staged kitchen <laughs> because I, I did go on holiday to a beautiful apartment and I pretended it was mine. <laughs> there you go, brilliant. So I just started with your lovely linen uh, doors closing uh, on your kitchen and they're not even there. But you're a writer, you're a model, presenter and the founder of a bloody brilliant The Queer Bible. You've been described as the coolest man in Britain. So as I discussed, slightly nervous what to wear with you. Totally the wrong jumper, God knows, but you're looking utterly gorgeous. Um, So welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Thank you so much for having me. And I must say that um, quote about me being the coolest man in Britain was from GQ magazine. And it was actually, the, the headline was a question. It was, is Jack Guinness the coolest man of Britain? And the answer is definitely no. A hundred percent no. And it's quite a cruel question to ask when you know the answer is no as well. (laughs) Oh, well, I really want to congratulate you on this amazing book, The Queer Bible. It's a collection of essays written by queer icons about the trailblazing lives that they've had, the history, what's inspired them. And it was published last summer. 
And I know so many have said it's one of the most powerful books that they have ever read, changing not only their thinking, but the way that they live their lives. I mean, how amazing. Um, But I know that the Queer Bible was a website first. So can you just tell me the story of how it became the book? And we're going to concentrate on the book a bit later on in this podcast. But where did it start? Sure. Um, Well, I think you'll find this talking to lots of your guests, that when they started their business or their project or their initiative, It was selfishly because they felt a lack themselves. Mm. They were creating a service that they themselves wanted. And I think often that's the best reason to start something. It's from your own personal experience, you sense a lack and then you fulfill that. So it's quite funny. I was watching the Oscars and Sam Smith, who um, now identifies as they, as non-binary, had just won the Oscar for best song at the Oscars, and they went backstage and said, um, I might be, or I think in their speech, they said, I might be the first gay person, as they then identified, to ever win an Oscar. And then they were trying to say something really positive and sweet and great, and then they came backstage and were promptly informed in front of the world's press. You know, when you have to stand and get your picture taken by thousands yeah. of, of journalists and photographers. Well, I don't, but I can I can have those. <laughs> I know you can, I can't. Uh, okay, I love them. Like, you know, you know at the Oscars... Yeah, no, no one knows what that's like, Jack. Shut up. Um, well, they went backstage and were told that not only were they not the first queer person to win an Oscar, they weren't even the first queer person to win that category of Oscar. So obviously Twitter, being the lovely place that it is, piled in with everyone saying, young people don't know their history, this is so appalling. And just before I joined and piled in, I thought, wait a minute, do I know my own LGBTQ mm. plus history? Like, I'm a relatively well-educated guy. I don't think I know my history. So I went online and I looked for a space or a place where I could learn about history and culture that had gone before me. And a lot of the websites were very, um, they looked like they'd been done in the 90s with kind of word clip art. You know, Mr. Clippy, the (laughs) paperclip, used to be like, that's not how you spell cat. And um, (laughs) I've given myself away there, I can't spell cat. And uh, and they're all in Comic Sans on in purple font. And I was like, wait yes. a minute. Oh. These are like they were made by a really uncool, nerdy professor. And LGBTQ plus people, stereotypically, are supposed to be, if I do say so myself, the coolest, most fabulous, brilliant people in the world. <laughs> so we need a website that reflects that. So I was just, I was a male model at the time. I was just loving my shallow life of going out to parties. The last thing I wanted to do was start a community project sharing the lives and works of the LGBTQ plus global population. But I had to do it. So that's how it started. So it starts with me asking my heroes to write an essay about someone they love, someone that changed their life. And then each one is accompanied by an illustration because I couldn't afford to pay for the rights for the photographs. So accidentally that created a kind of really lovely textured look to the website and then brand. So that's it. It's as simple as me being selfish, trying to educate myself, and asking the people that I love to write about the people that they love. I love that. Isn't it funny when you look at a brand? So I, of course, thought that those images was, of course, I'm not just having a normal photograph. I'm going to do something completely different. But actually, so many of our little touches when I, you know, we've interviewed over, we, I have interviewed over 160 people. Some of these crazy things in people's brands that you think must have been a really well thought through strategy 
were literally five minutes, uh, two minutes little doodle or something. And suddenly it's become their global um, logo. Or bootstrapping. Or yeah. they did it because they couldn't afford to employ the marketing and the ad people. Oh, completely. That's where it always comes from. And I actually think the best things come from bootstrapping. There's a rawness in that identity and that personality. So it was from creating this community, a movement rooted in something that was so personal to you. So do you feel in hindsight that some of those really hard experiences you went through when you were younger were actually sowing the seeds of what was to come and that your platform could basically be that supportive space uh, for those going through the same thing? Absolutely. I now know, looking back at what I created, that I've always subconsciously been doing this for myself, for my younger self. I was making the space, the place, the community that I didn't have when I was younger. And this isn't just for LGBTQ plus people. It's universal. We all go through that time where we feel different from the people around us. We feel that we've got a secret, whatever it might be. We, we, we feel that if only people knew what was really going on in my head. And it could, it could, could be anything, it, a psychological issue, anything. And we can feel separated from our families and from our friends, the very people that are supposed to feel closest to us. And for a lot of LGBTQ plus people, when they realise that they're part of that community, they literally are different and separate from, from those around them. You know, I grew up with the internet kind of just flourishing and starting. But if I wanted to meet people that were like me, I need, I couldn't do it in the digital space. I had to go out into the real world. And when you're a young person, you know, I grew up in central London, going out to bars and clubs and stuff a little bit younger than they should be. It, it is a relative, it can be a, a damaging or dangerous place. You know, the world can be like that. And I definitely felt depressed and um, self-destructive and I was looking for meaning and I was looking for community and I felt had really low self-esteem. So for me, something like this would have really really kind of saved me a few years of, of searching mm. and soul searching and, and, and looking for, for meaning and love in the wrong places. And I think any marginalised group, if you connect them up to their proud history, it's such an empowering thing to tell young people, you know, not only are you not alone, but you are descended from the most incredible human beings to walk the face of this, the planet. Yeah. These are your... Yeah chosen family this is who you're from hold your head high yeah and what and how much that was missing when you were growing up and we're going to talk about that but you use the word bible and I was wondering where that came from on your book but you grew up as the son of a vicar and there's a long line of vicars within your family so the fact that you came out to your family this must must have been a very scary move I know it's scary for the majority of people and I'm wondering if you felt like it was your mission in a way, it was your calling to, I, I know now, obviously, to write this book, but even then, how did it feel? And um, what an incredible upbringing. Yeah, I think you quite rightly point out, it's scary for anyone coming out to their family. Um, and then the added um, aspect of the, of the religion and then the weight of the history, I mean... All my uncles are vicars, my grandfather's a vicar, all my great uncles are vicars, my great great grandfather's a vicar, all my great great uncles are vicars. So every man's a vicar going back, I think, four, at least four generations, which is, <laughs> it's a lot of vicars. <laughs> it's a pile. I don't know what the collective what word is. What is the collective is for vicars. of vicars? It's a pile of vicars. I don't know. <laughs> um, so I had that history 
kind of bearing down on me and I'm quite a dramatic person anyway so I was very engaged with the with the drama and pain of it all but seriously that that was something that was hard for me also looking back now I have a great relationship with my family I love them very much they love me very much but it was difficult and so mm. I often talk to young LGBTQ plus people about coming out about the fact you don't owe it to anyone to come out. You come out when it's safe for you to do so, when it's read, when you're ready psychologically. And for me, it was tough and we've had to work really hard at our relationship. But now I really see it as a, as a point of hope for people because I say, you know, if, if I can have such a great relationship with my family, anything yes. really is possible. Because am I right in saying that you thought everything, you were either an angel or you were the devil? Yeah. And so you were like, right, well, I'm now evil. I mean, that's a lot. To, what age were you that you were thinking this? Well, I think when you grow up religious, things are quite binary, aren't they? They are like, you're either mm. going to heaven or you're hell. You're either a good little person or you're a bad little person. And that's quite a British thing as well. We're all told that. You see people, I do it to my own nephews. I'm like, you're a good boy, you're a bad boy. Yeah. We do it. It's bad. We shouldn't, oh, I've just done it again. I've just been binary again. That was very, that loomed very large in my mind. And... You know, the church are evolving on their relationship with the LGBTQ plus community, but um, they also have done a lot of damage to the community and people feel very excluded, which is ironic because the church is supposed to be the place where everyone's welcome. Mm. So in my mind, my young mind, my developing mind, I was, I felt very rejected by the church and excluded from something that I was supposed to feel part of. So that definitely caused a kind of schism in my in my brain and if we're going to be religious in my soul and that's something that i i continue to work on and develop i don't have a nice neat answer for you on that it's difficult i um read that you even tried to use the phrase that maybe your parents or your dad would understand you said i want to stand in truth with you when you came out that you probably were trying to find that language even at the time because this was in a time as well it's not today right this was a this is a good few years ago but it's interesting about the, the idea of using the language because i think subconsciously because of the 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 world i grew up in i have taken in maybe some of that language you're asking about why i called it the queer bible um, I think the church are really good at community building. Yeah. And sometimes I've been doing talks and I've realised that I've got the language of a preacher in me, that, that I'm kind of doing sermons sometimes and I can feel it coming up in me. I'm like, oh gosh, I've actually got that vicar, the, the energy of my blood. Vicar DNA. Vicar DNA, help. Um, and it comes out. And I was doing a talk the other day and someone afterwards said, gosh, that was like going to church. And I was like, oh my goodness. And that's the kind of thing that would have horrified me years ago. But now I'm coming to terms I with it. I think it's quite beautiful it is. now. And, yeah. and, and I think we, we try and compartmentalise ourselves and, and maybe deny different bits of ourselves. Because maybe it is a bit uncomfortable for a gay man to say, yeah, I've got the church running through my veins. But I do. And we should just accept that and be the fullest version of ourselves, even if it is a bit messy and complicated and yeah. sometimes gives you the ick. <laughs> the ick. I the love ick. that. So how did it go down with your family? Because not only were the, they very religious, you had a whole other side, but the Guinness family is also something of a dynasty. You previously spoken of how you realised that you were gay, but felt cut off from your friends and family. You know, this must have been so much pressure. You had the religious side, but also a name. Did you know that from an early no, age? No, no. Like my childhood was very... Um 
disconnected from that world, from the world of kind of rich aristocratic families and yeah. glamour and all that. It was something I learned about as I grew older and probably was kind of drawn towards as well because it's it's kind of like a dream, isn't it? If you're yeah. a, a young gay kid growing up in South London and your dad's a vicar on a, on a council estate and you get told, oh, you're from this amazing family. You're like, oh, great, off I go. <laughs> I'm going to the smoke to become famous, daddy. <laughs> you know, it's like... It's like mad, isn't it? Um, but we're 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 the poor Guinnesses as well. There's there's a few <laughs> strands of us. We're all descended from Arthur Guinness, but unfortunately we've got different bank accounts, which is very depressing. Um, but yeah, you can't just get like a pass with I th- that I name, that you surname. Could. I thought I assumed yeah, you filled that, that form online, and then the Guinness Brewery just sent you millions of pounds, and that was that. And it arrived in like a Daimler full of gold, but no, livid. That's not what happens at all. You have to. You have to just make a name for yourself off your own back. It's annoying, isn't it? Very annoying, following their footsteps and things. Um, I think a lot of people might not recognise the sort of anguish that potentially people go through. And, you know, you carried... Did people recognise... I'm assuming people recognised your surname. Yes. The famous... Yes. So that's right. So you've got this famous family surname and potentially people see a white privileged guy. I am white and I am privileged. Right. So... No matter the circumstances, though, you had your own internal struggles. It's something I'm quite interested in, actually, because a lot of the amazing humans that I interview on this podcast happen to be white. And also because they have built their businesses, they are now in a privileged position. Some of them definitely didn't start that way. Do you feel that there is a, uh, you know, in this time of change that we need to sort of be kind to ourselves labelling these sort of labels, this this sort of understanding, this white privileged guy, you, but no one actually saw what was going on behind closed doors, so to speak. Holly, that's a very nuanced thing that you're talking about. And one, I'd also say... um, you let's work hard then to make sure your guests are more diverse than maybe they've been in the Mm. past. Um, Let's Mm. have more voices being interviewed Mm. by you. That's something that we all need to work on. Then secondly, I think it's really difficult because I think we kind of need to separate out the idea of of me being white and privileged and actually having quite a difficult internal world and suffering Mm -hmm. from then that leading us to say that we don't need to talk about me being white and privileged. Do you get what I mean? I think they can both Yeah, Yeah, totally. I think we can say that I have a really famous last name, which opened loads of doors for me. I look a certain way, which opens doors for me. I was Mm -hmm. really privileged to access education, so I got the gift Mm -hmm. of the gab. Some of that is obviously my Irish genes. It's not all yes. It's not all education. Some of that's just DNA. That's just Irish chat. So you don't get the money, but you got the I gift didn't, of the yeah, gab. I'd much rather have the gift of the gab because then you can make your own bloody money. Um, so the, these are things that I got that are luck, that are just, you know, the, the throw of the dice. And yes, I had a really tough time growing up. I suffered from really bad depression, really bad anxiety. I got really badly bullied. I nearly didn't make it into adulthood. Things were that bad. They were really tough for me. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that all those other things aren't true too. Mm. That I am white and I am privileged and I have had access to stuff that the majority of people Mm -hmm. don't get access to and they should get access to. And it's just not fair. 
That doesn't mean I need to beat myself up. That means I need to use my privilege to lift other people up so they can have access to the stuff that they should have access to. Mm -hmm. And I think it's much, it's, it's too easy for me to say, oh, I had a hard time, therefore it's fine that I'm white and privileged and it's fine that society is unfair because I had a difficult time too. We don't need to sit and compare our tragedy and our suffering. We can say that tragedy and suffering are just peri wrong, period. So what can we do to make a society that's fairer for everyone and less traumatic for everyone and less painful for everyone? How can we make it easier to be LGBTQ plus or to be black in a predominantly white society? What can we do to bring about that structural change? And I can hold my hands up and say that I am really privileged and got loads of things that I did nothing to, I did nothing to deserve. I just got given them. Mm. And I can also say and hold in the same hand that life was really tough for me. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. They can both be true. It's not one or the other. And I think the messiness, that greyness is a place that's a bit uncomfortable to sit. It's a bit confusing to sit, but mm. let's sit in it and work it through together and talk it through. And that's mm. what I'd say to that. That was a lot, but <laughs> do you get no, my it's point? It's so good. It's so good. I almost, when you were, because we're going to talk about your book and I was just imagining it um, as, because I, I, I also find, and maybe it's my brain, the messiness um, is hard for me to compute. Whereas if I looked at it as chapters of your book, of you, you know, you have a chapter about what you were given and the privilege and the name and this and that and all the things you just said. But then I'll just turn the page and it'll be chapter two. And it will also be about your true experience, the pain that you did go through, the bullying. I read about that you had experiences that really you shouldn't probably have had when you were younger, mm. but one doesn't negate the other in, in a sense. It can, and it can, I love the fact you're saying it can sit next to each other. We're going to go on to your book, The Queer Bible. So number one, you're a dyslexic like myself and that's fun writing a book. Um, <laughs> it's, <laughs> I mean, Grammarly was my favorite friend. That's the updated version of the paperclip that we're talking yeah, about. Yeah. I mean, Thank God, the paperclip. And just on a side note, my friend uh, went on holiday and they were like, who is this guy? He's a bit nerdy. You know, maybe maybe we should go and say hello. And they were like, mm, I don't know, I'm a bit nerdy. And they did go and say hello. And it was the guy that invented the paperclip. No. And yes. And when they Mr. got... Mr. Clippy. It's Mr. Clippy. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Clippy had his yacht. And Mr. <gasps> Clippy... That was the only thing he'd kept because apparently they were like the coolest group of developers when they invented the paperclip guy. They used to ride motorbikes around their offices. They were being paid something of equivalent to a million pounds a week from just being nerdy, wonderful humans that were coding. Yes. And they became the complete, something that you would almost see on, on, on Netflix now as a series. Yes. You know what yeah. I mean? And Mr. Clippy had to give up his whole flamboyant life to and he just kept the yacht to basically get his head together because I think it went a bit crazy. Sure. He didn't go into that sure. as it does. I don't know, but as I heard I. it does. <clears throat> <laughs> yes. And, um, and Mr. Clippy basically now lives travelling the world with a very big bank balance, um, with his wife um, with $3 T-shirts. Holly, you can't make out that he's some like... Guy, Buddha, walking through the desert. He's on a yacht. 
Like, I, come it is, on. It's, <laughs> yeah, I know, but I'm just saying, I think there were many, many yachts and many okay, private so you're jets. Saying he had he's, 10 and now he's got one. He's calmed it got down. It. Wow. That's what, what I'm a trying guy. to say. What a Mr. spiritual guy. And I'm wondering what the yacht. Guess what? The, I'm, I'm wondering what that yacht. It better be called Mr. Clippy. That yacht. I hope it is. <laughs> Because that would be a miss if he hadn't. It's getting, it's getting choppy aboard, Mr. Clippy. <laughs> Back to your book, The Queer Bible. So um, I wanted to ask, and can I ask this question? And I think a lot of people might be thinking this and then they're thinking, is Holly going to ask? Mm -hmm. I didn't know that queer was a term that we could use. Am I wrong in thinking that potentially it was used incorrectly and derogatorily um, in the past. I just love the word derogatorily. That's great. Yeah, That's, it's good, isn't is it? it? New? It's great. It's, yeah, well, it's when you write it down, you're dyslexic yes. and then you read it out. That's how we spell. That's how we spell. <laughs> that's, how, that's how we spell. So, great question. Um, what I love about language, first of all, is that it changes and it grows and words evolve and their meanings change. That's great, or else we'd all be talking like Shakespeare, which is very good, especially for us dyslexics. So I interviewed Sir Ian McKellen for the upcoming Queer Bible podcast that's out soon. And he said to me that in the 50s and 60s, queer was a positive word that he would use to describe himself and his other gay friends. And gay meant happy. Mm -hmm. Then gay kind of evolved to mean homosexual. And then queer became a, a kind of term of abuse that has now been yes. taken in by the LGBTQ plus community and, and the meaning has shifted and we're using it as a positive word. So I think it's all about context. So if you, not you specifically, Holly, but if one was driving past me in a car and leant out of the window and shouted, or you queer, that wouldn't be okay. That would be like a hate yes. crime. That's not okay. So don't do that, people. But talking about queer studies, the queer community. That is a word now, that's a phrase that is, is a positive, descriptive word. And I think you go back to intention with so many words. It's about how you use the word, what's the feeling behind it. Mm. And the word queer now is a catch-all kind of umbrella term that describes the LGBTQ plus community. And it also describes a kind of different way of living, a way of maybe rejecting a lot of the norms of society. So it's not just a way of living. It's not just about who you have sex with or how you identify your gender. It's, it's about a way of thinking as well. So it's a very helpful term. And I'd also say to your listeners, I, I, you know, I just did a lot of press for the Queer Bible book. I was going live on the radio, I went live on TV, and I'm terrified of getting it wrong, of offending people, of saying the, the wrong thing or using the right phrase in the wrong way. And what I would say is it, it's really important to just have good intentions and be here for the, to really learn humbly. Mm -hmm. And if you're having a conversation with someone and you get something wrong, often, you know, I've got, I've got trans friends who deal with such abuse. They should be so much more defensive and prickly than they are. And they're the most open, kind, correcting, lovely people ever. So if I get something wrong, they'll lovingly correct me and we can just move on. And so I think if you're scared about talking about sex or gender or race, it's much better to try and have those conversations with a good heart and maybe mess up sometimes than not have those conversations at all. Because it's through having those conversations where we maybe feel a bit uncomfortable, where we're maybe not always getting it right. That's how we grow and that's how we connect to each other. So I'm really glad that you asked that question. 
I get it wrong sometimes. I'm constantly learning. And I think it's really cool if we just, we do, we do all that together. Thank you. There because you go. even Well, there you go. And that's even why, you know, at the beginning of this podcast, I was getting tongue-tied because I think that there is a nervousness to getting it wrong. That the, the last thing on the planet I would want to do is get it wrong or offend or anything. But at the same time, you then maybe shy away from even wanting to learn and embrace because you're just scared at that first that initial hurdle. And so it's fantastic that you've cleared that up for us as well. So listen, you wrote the Queer Bible during lockdown and um, it resonates me because I'm also dyslexic and I also wrote my book in lockdown at the same time. I found it such a cathartic experience. Tell me about your experience because the whole world was sort of turning upside down outside of our writing room. <laughs> writing room? I don't know. I don't have a writing room where my desk is. Um, I don't even have a desk. um, You don't even have a desk. There you are. You're on a sofa. Well, you're cool. So you're on a laptop and sofa. (laughs) I I, I couldn't, I'm still like desktop mini here. So tell me, was it a good distraction during that period of time? Sure. I mean, you know, we all went through something really traumatic and horrific and, you know, so many awful things happened. We lost so many amazing people. It was, it was a really tough time economically and psychologically and emotionally for so many people. Um, so I, I, for me, my whole world stopped. All my work stopped, all my shoots stopped, all my events stopped. And it was in that weird transition before everything kind of pivoted online. Oh, yes. So suddenly, I, you know, I'm self-employed. I'm, I'm a, I, I run a business, but it's, it's just me. So all my income suddenly stopped. And it was absolutely terrifying for someone that has worked so so hard and mm. every day wakes up and goes right how am I going to make my dreams come true what's the next thing I'm going to do to, ha- to have everything just disappear was terrifying and if I hadn't had the book to do I don't know how I would have got through lockdown it was brilliant it gave me something to focus on also I was working with my incredible contributors so just for your listeners it wasn't I didn't write the whole book this is quite a good cheat if you are dyslexic do a collection of essays and get other people to write the majority of your book for you. That's, that's my number one tip. That was my miss. <laughs> oh, you didn't try and write a whole book yourself. What are you doing? I did. <laughs> you legend. I didn't. I cheated. So I was working with people like Elton John, Graham Norton, Tan France from Queer Eye, Lady Phil, the founder of UK Black Pride, the amazing activist Monroe Bergdorf. So I was connected to this community of really quite interesting, amazing people, collaborating with them on their essays and collaborating with the artists who were doing all the illustrations for the book. So I wasn't just sat alone on a, on a computer, on my trendy laptop, on my sofa. I was uh, connected to this group of amazing people. So I know it sounds terrible, but my lockdown was made a bit easier because I got to phone Elton John every now and then. <laughs> It really got me through. <laughs> I mean, yeah, just that. That's the most unique thing that's ever been said about the lockdown, to, for sure. Tell me why um, you said that it saved my life. Of course, in lockdown and having that purpose and, and those things. But was it another sort of, um, I don't know, chapter in your book of you? Sure. I think, I think for a lot of people that have um, had struggles with their mental health, being locked in your house and it being illegal to go and see anyone or walk around was pretty tough. And I think it maybe brought up a lot of 
things for people that maybe they'd previously dealt with that came up again. You know, I've got friends that had fought depression years ago and, and suddenly finding themselves alone in their flat. That was really, really tough for them. So yeah, I think the Queer Bible Project, the website, the upcoming podcast, and especially the book during lockdown, you know, it doesn't, it does sound quite dramatic, but in many ways it, it did. It certainly saved my sanity. Maybe, maybe not my physical life, but maybe that too. I don't know. <laughs> trying to keep it light and sexy but I got very heavy there <laughs> as you know I'm passionate about celebrating small businesses and championing creativity within all of us that's why I'm thrilled to be working with Adobe Express who each week are handing over their ad break to a small business founder shining a light on their own businesses and sharing how Adobe Express really is helping fuel their creativity Hello, my name's Liz and I'm the founder of Gus and Bo Baby Playmats. Back in 2018, I was looking for a stylish puzzle playmat for my son Gus, one that would fit in with my interiors and preferably not in primary colours and I couldn't find one anywhere. So I did the only sensible thing and decided to design and manufacture my own. In 2019, I launched GusAndBow.com with four different style playmats in triangles and circles. We now have 10 beautiful designs at Gus and Bow to choose from in simple patterns. Best of all, you can fit as many tiles together as you need, so they are perfect for a cute play corner or a full floor in a playroom. And even better, they are wiped clean. Social media has been a huge part of growing my business, so it's really important for me to consistently post relevant content, which can be really time-consuming. So enter Adobe Express, which has been a real lifesaver for me. There are so many templates to use that immediately make my Instagram stories look slick, all using my brand colours and my logo too. I use the Adobe Express app on my phone and it sizes everything correctly for Instagram straight away. You can even edit and resize videos for Reels, which we now know is very important. Content is king. We have just launched a brand new colour playmat at Gus and Bow in a beautiful mint green. And using Adobe Express has meant that I can create all of my assets in one place and use them for social, email and ads too. Please do come and see us on Instagram at gusandbow underscore and at gusandbow.com where I've set up the code HOLLY15 for 15% off of our playmats for you. Thank you once more to Adobe who have helped to make this podcast episode happen. If you want to find out more about Adobe Express and how it can help your business, head over to adobe.com slash go slash hollytucker. Now let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. You must have had the most amazing stories that came through. And that must have just been like gold the whole time that you're hearing them. The, these stories that came through, were I, I, and I've got the book here. I have um, started to read it. I haven't read it all, but it is moving stuff, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's, it are, are some of these, um, you know, a lot of times that people, um, when they read their younger letter to their younger self at the end of this podcast, have never done that process before. You know, and they, they absolutely bitch about it potentially you know, behind closed doors, never to me. They're always very nice to me, but they're like, are you joking me, Holly? I have time to write a letter to my younger self. Not that you did that. I absolutely did not. No, you wink, didn't do wink. that. <laughs> <laughs> but when they've done it, they're like, 
I'm really glad I did that. That was a really nice little moment for me. Was it the same for you? Yeah, or did everyone just no, go, sure, Jack, I'm just going to write no, this essay no, for no, you? No, 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 it was a process. And it, it is cathartic. It's very rare in life that we stop, look back at our previous younger self and try and create a connection there or maybe learn any lessons. It's a very weird thing to do. I think everyone should do it. I think it's great that you have it on your podcast every episode. Also, I think a lot of the writers were going back to a point in their life when their lives were very different, when they maybe hadn't accepted yeah. all of themselves. I mean, Graham Norton's essay, for example, is so, so funny, as you'd expect, but it's also incredibly moving. And he creates this beautiful thread through his life that connects up this isolated young guy growing up in rural Ireland who was literally the only gay in his village who decided that he couldn't even wouldn't even bother to come out because you need someone else to be gay with so he would have just been gay riding around on his bicycle by himself <laughs> gay watching television alone and he talks about gay being gay as being a kind of sport for two not for one which is hilarious. And then he talks about going off to San Francisco and meeting his hero, Armistead Morpin, who wrote Tales of the City. And then he links it up to his life now and how successful he is. But he talks about the potential traps that we set for ourselves. And we all do this about being too rigid about thinking who we are, what our lives are like, our successes. And he talks about the, the possibility of escape from that and of growing even now at the amazing point in his life. So all the essays have that arc, that narrative, that kind of beginning, middle and end. And then they will have their own energy. You know, Mae Martin, the brilliant comedian, wrote a really, really funny essay. Um, Elton John's essay is really shocking. <laughs> Elton is a legend. And it's really shocking and it's really moving. So it's a collection of stories, I guess, that are just like life. It's silly, they're funny, and sometimes they are really, really challenging and really moving. So it's got something for everyone. I always think in life you should try and make people laugh and make them cry. And the Queer Bible definitely does that. Does the two things in equal measures. Because when we go back to your childhood, you talked about being bullied. You talk about, um, you know, um, Section 28 under the Conservative government prohibited the talk of homosexuality in schools between 1988 and 2003. I mean, it's just unbelievably shocking. I bet there was, you know, in these stories, you've got people with their own mental health issues, derived from not being who they are, their physical safety, uh, straight washing throughout time. It's a big subject, isn't it? And you must feel very proud that you've started this journey with these stories, bringing this library, I suppose, of history. I'm so proud of it. And, and you know, I was a male model for 15 years. I still do it occasionally if I need the cash or want the attention. And that was all about me. It was about how do I get successful? How do I get front and centre? And it's really tough to be successful in the fashion world. You have to be not cutthroat, but there needs to be a, a, you know, a singularity of vision. You need to have that drive. You don't accidentally find your way at the top in, in, in that world. And letting go of that and finding a project that wasn't about me, wasn't about me being front and centre, but was about other people and pushing their stories forward was such a humbling and helpful and brilliant thing to be part of. 
And I'm so proud that I get to share these people's stories with the world. And some of the messages I've had from like straight parents that say the book has helped them understand their kid or start difficult conversations with their kids. Mm. Young people that are like, I felt completely alone and I read the book and realized that there are other people just like me or, and there have been for thousands of years. It's really moving. And it's, you know, I love the fashion world. It's what's given me this career. It's what's given me this platform. I'm very grateful to it. But this is a lovely evolution from that world. Yes. And it's a world of, of meaning and connection. And I'm, I'm, really, I'm really proud of it. And I feel very, very grateful to be part of it. Talking of that, I just want to go back, actually, to the fact that you were this are an amazing model. There we are, chiseled face looking straight at me. Can I just go back to the fact that you grew up in Brixton before your family moved to Belgravia and your father, so you talk about vicars, was Margaret Thatcher's vicar? I mean, I cannot imagine that. Um, Tell me what that was like in that beginning stage, because I know then you go on to have issues with your GCSEs. Yeah. You then smash your A-levels. I, d- I want to know how you did that. That was a surprise to me as well. <laughs> Take me through that. Take me through those younger years because I'd love sure. to end where you are a model for 15 years. It's quite a roller coaster, really. Um, it's not anything to aspire to, but it's how it happened. So yeah, I grew up in Lambeth in the 80s, which was a really amazing time. It was such a diverse, rich community and a really active church community and being the son of a vicar you're kind of at the center of this world and the stories I've got just mad crazy things would constantly happen it was like a a tv show there were all these characters and being the the kind of vicar's family always at the center of some kind of drama be it a really happy one like a wedding or something really just unbelievable I mean really uh, the stories give me a glass of wine I'll tell you some (laughs) just mind-blowing stories it was crazy then and then we moved to Belgravia which was a huge shift so if you're part of a church you kind of just move with the atmosphere of the church so the the one in Brixton was all about the community and then the one in Belgravia was you know a church in the middle of one of the most expensive areas in in the world so it was a huge adjustment to make as a nine-year-old, ten-year-old. And yeah, my dad was Margaret Thatcher's vicar, geographically. She definitely went there sometimes, but some of the more um, conservative listeners will be horrified to hear that Maggie was really bad at attending church. She was she's basically a heathen. I think I can say that now. Um, she was very naughty woman and she was she's just very undisciplined about going to church. I can't say how much she used to donate when the... Um, What's that called when the when the offering bowl what, goes round? You're asking me. What yeah, that's I know called. it's awful, isn't it? Come on, the offering bowl. When the offering bowl, the went offering round, bowl. Yes, I can't say are. whether she dropped a coin in, a fiver, or nothing. I don't know, but she was hardly ever there. Um, but he was officially Margaret Thatcher's vicar, so that was a big shift for me, going from from a very working class but very friendly and community orientated uh, area into Belgravia. So that was a bit of a shock culturally. And then, yeah, I, I got very badly bullied at school. And I ended up dropping out of school. And I went from doing like 11 GCSEs to doing, I think I got like six or something like that. It's really... It's all right. Bit of a, bit of a drop though. Nearly yeah, half. Yeah, gap. Okay. And then I went to like a college and ended up doing surprisingly well in my A-levels. And all my family was shocked. Yeah, you turned it around. I was disappointed. I did. I got four A's. And I think... 
the, the narrative was very much that I was this, you know, troubled yeah. black sheep of the family that was a loser. And I, I ruined everyone's perceptions of me by, by smashing it. Again. And then I ended up going to Cambridge, which was another surprise for everyone. <laughs> I just like being contrary, really. And you studied, what did you study? I did English literature. English literature. Okay, so I see now where the writing skills and the love of writing comes from. But then you entered the fashion industry, a hugely successful career, as you said, 50, spanning 15 years, a global campaigns for clients such as L'Oreal, Dunhill, Dolce Cabana, Gucci. And now we might be thinking that being a gay guy in fashion wasn't particularly revolutionary at the time, <laughs> but it was because there was a pressure on you not to be openly gay at that time. Yeah, it's it's people are shocked to hear that. The, I mean, the this, and this is going back now. Things have changed so rapidly and it's really exciting to see diverse faces and identities front and centre of campaigns. And that's, that change has happened really quickly and it's really positive. But people are shocked because they think of the, of the fashion industry as, as a stereotypically quite gay-heavy industry. And it, and it is. But front of camera, when I began modelling, there was very much a pressure to butch up and appear heterosexual, whatever that might mean. And uh, I was told by my model bookers, you know, don't tell that client that you're gay. Um, and I'm really quite gay. So I had to really tone things down. And there was a fear, I think, that consumers wouldn't want to buy products from someone that they knew was gay or, or appeared gay. And that clients would be nervous using you as their ambassador for their brand. And I think also, there is a little bit of internalised homophobia by some of the gay guys that work in the fashion industry. And I have that in me too. We, you know, we get told certain things about ourselves and we can take them in. And so it was interesting. And it, it took a long time for me to really be really um, open and proud of who I was in my workplace. You know, and a lot of LGBTQ plus people have that. It just happened that my workplace was the gayest workplace in the world. <laughs> But yeah, and then and then when I did eventually come out and I launched the Queer Bible and I, I obviously I was I was out to my friends and stuff. But when I publicly started to speak about it, um, I definitely there were a few clients that I used to work very regularly with who I stopped working with. That's absolutely true, and I know who they are in my head, but I won't name and shame. But then about a week after I did my big coming out piece in the Guardian, I got booked to be the face of Levi's um, as their European pride ambassador. So the very thing I was afraid of and I was told would ruin yeah. my career actually ended up being one of the biggest things I had done up until that point. So I was really, I was very proud of that moment and it was very moving. Was there a moment, can I ask, and it might be too personal, when you decided that's that, I'm, I'm coming out publicly enough and you, you you said right at the beginning of the podcast it's a very very personal thing it should be done only when you want to when it's right for you in your heart and your soul not for other people but was there a moment for you yes absolutely I don't mind answering that it is very personal but I'm, I'm more than happy to talk about it I realized that I was doing intense damage to myself it's, it's one thing to not feel safe and to hide who you are I was continuing to do that. I was closeting myself. And it got to the point where the pain that that was causing me internally was worse than any jobs I might lose. Okay. And I decided that for me, I just wanted to be me and I just wanted to be open and the fullest version of myself. And that meant I lost a few crappy clients. Who cares? 
Um, and now I don't think that's the case at all in the industry. I'm so excited to see yes. so many out gay models that are really, that are activists, that are really proud of who they are. And that's a part of them. That's a part of why they're successful. And I think social media's changed that as well. People want authentic, yes. real, rounded human beings. And that's great. And I really want to celebrate that. And I do want to applaud the fashion industry for the positive strides that they're making. And we can always do better. But it's a very exciting time in terms of representation, inclusivity and diversity. Yeah, it really, really is. A quick question before we move on. You studied English Lit at Cambridge and then you went to be a famous model. Uh, what bit in between? Did you want to have another job uh, to start with or was that what you wanted to do? No, I know. It's awful, isn't it? If, you, if, if my like, life was a graph, it is quite wavy. It's quite wavy. It's quite a camp wave, isn't it? Of oh, always going to Cambridge. Oh, no, he's going back the other way. He's going to stand still and have his picture taken for money. Oh, he's going to write a book. Oh, he's an activist. It's confusing. What am I going to do next? Um, now, I'm well aware of the irony of, of working very hard and going to Cambridge and then just going and being a model. Nothing wrong with being a model. It's a great job and I'm really proud of it. Um, but I, I had long hair and a beard and there was one other male guy that had that. And I got cast, I got, I got scouted basically. And then the next day I was riding bareback on a horse for Cosmo magazine, <laughs> which was great with my long flowing hair and my beard. And then that, if you wanted a bearded model, it was either me or this other guy. So this is before the beard and the kind of ponytail thing took off. Yes. So I just, it happened accidentally. And you know, if you were just fresh out of university guy and you get offered loads of money to, yeah. to ride around on horses, you're not going to say no. And then it just didn't stop and it didn't stop for a very long time. So it's, it's less that I'm ambitious and more that I kind of, I'm like Forrest Gump, lazily and absentmindedly wandering into different <laughs> careers. But it also is just an unbelievable, I know David uh, Candy is very close to you as well. And, uh, you know, I and he talked about on this podcast this unbelievable especially at that period of time you know the life I mean it is of of dreams you know that what you experienced and so yeah maybe the other career that you were thinking mm, now what do I do with my English lit degree uh, might not have stood up to riding on horses um, yeah. traveling the world meeting incredible people wearing fabulous you know things maybe I'll do the teacher training course in a few years <laughs> yes you, know? you just, you put it on the back burner for now. Yeah. I'm putting a pin in it. I'm, put, I'm going to Cannes and I'm putting a pin in that. I often talk on this podcast about finding your diamond, the thing that makes you completely uniquely you. And I talk to children all the time about it. I, if, I only wish we were all told as children, you know, there is one thing about you that will make you the most special person ever to walk the planet. And I read that you feel now the most yourself that you've ever felt before. And firstly, by the way, that makes me so deeply actually moved and happy when people do feel that that sense. I'm in that place in my life at the moment as well. Do you have any words of wisdom for others who might be struggling to find that place in themselves? Gosh, yeah. I'm, I'm very grateful that I've got there and it's taken a really long time. I think to be really brave to be really brave and face the entirety of who you are. And I think some people are scared sometimes of how great they can be if they really just 
stop being afraid and stop judging themselves and stop listening to those negative voices in their heads. And sometimes it takes a lot of work to stop listening to those voices. It takes a lot of work to undo the damage that the world does to us when it tells us that we're not good enough, that we're not thin enough, that we're not clever enough, that we're whatever it might have been that we've been told and we keep telling ourselves. And it's through hard work on ourselves that we can move through that and that might take amazing friends it might take therapy which I'm a massive um, proponent of whatever it might be it can be a really long journey but I would say to really get to a place of self-acceptance and self-love as cliched as that sounds Mm. and it's from that foundation that you can go into the world and be the best version of who you are and that's a long process you know I'm only just getting to that place and it takes a lot of of hard work and I think it's about being brave as well to just really love who you are in the entirety and the messiness Mm. of that and how can I ask how old you are yeah that's fine you can but I'm not going to answer (laughs) I'm joking (laughs) don't do that (laughs) I've got I've got a friend um this is I I think I can tell this story okay she was backstage at a fashion show and she went up to a very famous model and said hello how are you? And the model turned around and said, oh my gosh, thank you. (laughs) So this model is so used to getting compliments that she heard a compliment and just said, thank you. So now when anyone asks how how old I am, I just go, oh my gosh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You can have that. Thank you. But you're not going to answer. Oh, no. No. Oh. Well, I turned, I'm just saying I turned 45 last week and um, I, I just feel that there's a point, isn't there, where you do get, um, you're laughing. Because no, I'm only joking. I'm 39. I really oh, don't 39. care about my... I thought you were laughing that I'm no. 45. No, and by the you way, like, you look great. You look oh, well, great. Bless you for saying you that. I thought you could say the opposite. But 45, and I almost feel like there is this point, isn't there? We go through, you know, no one could pay me to go back to my teens, 20s, even my 30s. That was fine. But this is awesome. This whole stage is incredible. 40s is just I feel it's sort of, and I hear, by the way, it's pretty great at 50. And then you hear the 60-year-olds talking and they're like, nothing starts until you're 60. So we've actually got the best decades in front of us to be even, if we're like this at the beginning, you know, finding ourselves happiest we've ever been, can you only imagine what's going to happen in two decades' time? I love this. I really need to, needed to hear this because like hitting the big four zero is quite scary. Yeah. Um, hitting the four five, by the way, where the next right. one is on the other side next to 50. That's fucking much more scary than 40. <laughs> I'm just letting you know that. So you, <laughs> youngster, definitely yeah. don't worry about it. It's 45 okay. because there's something about 45. Do you know what I mean? It's like you are now not just 40 type thing. I think I know what it might be as well. It feels like for me, I'm coming up to that bit where I'm like, oh, I'm maybe coming up to maybe what half my age is going to be. Yeah. When you're in that last... 45. I nearly you know, branded half. it a half-life party. That's great. And then I started crying every time I spoke about it. My sister went, I don't think we should brand it up as a half-life party. I think we should rebrand this. <laughs> I think we should rebrand Why it. Why are we even branding feeling. up your birthday? But I was like, I brand up everything. So it was a half-life. I want to... Do, I'm, I just could talk to you forever. I want to talk to you about this amazing uh, position that you hold as being part of the London Commission for Diversity, 
right? So this is awesome. So London is one of the most diverse cities in the world, and yet our statues and plaques and street names don't really reflect that. And Sadi Khan announced the commission in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests of summer of 2020 and toppling of the statue of the slave trader Edward Colston in Bristol. It must be very exciting to be part of this initiative and this sort of shift that you're literally seeing in society. Yeah, so it's the Commission for Diversity in the Public Realm. And it's really simple. We want to make sure that our arts and public spaces truly reflect the richness and diversity of the communities that live in the city and make this city so great. So there's a terrifying statistic. There are more statues of men called John the non-royal queens, non-royal women in London. So there are more statues of men called John than women who aren't in the royal family in London. Yeah. That's insane. That's so terrible, that disparity. So we're really excited to be part of this shift where people are really wanting to make sure that everyone can see themselves in the art in our public spaces. And it goes back to what I was talking about before, about how important it is for young people to connect up to their chosen family, to their tribe, and to realise that they're part of a a history that stretches back. And imagine, you know, being a woman walking around central London and not seeing yourself reflected back. The messages that that's sending is, you're not important, Mm. you're not valued, your group haven't contributed anything to society that's worth memorialising. And that's just simply not true. Mm. So I'm really excited that the general public are calling for a change, an evolution in how we commission these spaces. So I'm very excited. Uh, It's a really great time. And I'm very humbled to be part of this commission, which is um, kind of populated by some of the most incredible people I've ever had the pleasure of working with. I mean, it must be. I mean, I I don't know who they are, but I can only imagine the assembly of brains are there to make this shift. And it's and it's also just amazing, isn't it, when you think about, um, you said, after the year we've had, we need something that is inspiring, sparks debate and joy. That art that you see in daily life affects you in a subliminal way. If you walk past a statue of a black woman every day, it will obviously change the way you see black women. You won't see them as othered. You'll see them as worthy, taking up space, being celebrated. I just absolutely love this. And London should be the sort of, is this going to be a sort of a test patch, I suppose, for maybe other cities or is this across the UK? Well, this is something that's happening all around the world. So cities all around the world are engaged with this initiative. And also it's not just about statues as well. It's about commissioning really new, exciting pieces of work that aren't just, you know, physical statues of individuals. Yes, And there's a huge programme right now of new commissions being awarded throughout the city um, and throughout the world. So it's very exciting. And they're not all just statues. You know, we've got loads of um, art interventions that are happening. And they're really going to... I love what you said there. They're going to spark joy. And this isn't about creating separation or political polarisation. This is finding um, work that really brings us all together and mm. celebrates our difference and celebrates the the things we have in common as well and our history and yeah. our shared history. Yeah. And that's exactly what the Queer Bible is about. It's about saying, yeah, we are different and we are unique and that is beautiful, but we also have a shared 
common history yes. and shared common interest. And that is so beautiful. And that's what makes me proud to be a Londoner and makes me proud to be a human. <laughs> You're pretty great human, you are, I've got to say. Um, so what's next for you? Do you have any dreams that you've yet to achieve? Because remember, we've got, you know, you haven't even hit the 40. So you've got all these decades I've just spoken to you about. So, you know, what what are these decades? Do you, what, what dreams might you have? Sure, I'm really excited. The Queer Bible podcast is coming up soon um, and you can subscribe. There's a great trailer that I've done in the style of a kind of 90s new age hypnosis CD that's kind of very funny and very weird and moving. You'll really like it, Holly. You'll really oh, like cool. it. So you can subscribe to that wherever you get your podcasts. And then the next part of my life is just going to be really about celebrating and elevating and sharing LGBTQ plus voices. And I still love fashion and art. And that's a huge part of my life. So I think it's just going to be about telling stories. And I'm not mm. precious whether that's in a podcast, whether it's in a book, yeah. or whether it's in a, a kind of documentary or digital content. So oh. yeah, the world's my oyster. And knowing me, I'll probably walk into a completely different career tomorrow. Well, but remember, but remember your um, the wave, your, your the waves, your graphs. <laughs> Crikey! Uh oh, there's something coming. There's something coming. This has just been a glorious moment to firstly get to know you. And David said you were just absolutely a most unique human being and that you are. At the end of my podcast, I ask my guests about their journey in terms of a roller coaster, the highs and lows, because as you know, building anything, you have these highs and lows. Can you tell me what's been one of your biggest lows on this journey so far? Yeah, I think there wasn't just one low. I think, especially working in fashion, you get so many no's you get so many doors closed in your face. And for me, there wasn't just kind of one moment of despair. It was a kind of grinding down of feeling not good enough, of losing hope, of feeling that I wasn't going to be able to achieve my dreams. And so the low is that. It's the that feeling in life that doors are just closing one after the other and that sense that you're losing hope. Um, and I'm really glad that I didn't and that I, I persevered. Yeah, I can only imagine, by the way, your resilience to having all those doors shut in your face. It's quite a great muscle that you worked up maybe for this period of your life. Absolutely. I mean, I've, I, when you're a model or an actor, you're, you're, you're rejected more than you're accepted. Yes. So you, you probably get rejected from like 80, 90% of everything you apply for or go, go for. So you do, you know, when I've got friends that are like, oh, I've got a job interview and I don't think it's gone very well. I'm like, I used to go to 20 job interviews a week and get rejected from every single one of them. And it's because of how my face looked <laughs> or because I walked funny. Like, just suck it up. Suck it up. God, what are you going on about? Fine. It just would be your face. This is yes. the thing. And people say it's not personal. I'm like, well, well it doesn't get any more personal get... than that. You know, you'll be in Milan and they're like, no, I don't like your face and you walk funny. <laughs> Did you ever break both your arms? I've had someone say that to me once. Why? What were you doing with your arms? I just, I got slightly weird arms when I walk. <laughs> you wouldn't notice it. No normal kind person would. But a cruel, hard-nosed fashionista in Milan picks up on that sort of thing and they let you know. And what about your high on that roller coaster? God, you look totally gorgeous as you do now, sitting on the top in your cart, dressed fabulously. Go on, what would be your high? What a vision. What a vision. My highlight was 
getting the book deal, getting the book commissioned, because I knew this can really take these stories to a bigger audience. And then when each of the contributors agreed to be part of the book, especially Elton John and David Furnish, wow. that was huge. And that was one of those pinch yourself moments. And, and going back to before, when I was talking about my low, about doors getting closed on me, you know, those people didn't just agree. That took a lot of hard work. So I'd say to the listeners out there, you know, if you get doors closed in your face, that tenacity to keep going and going and going mm. is so important. And when a kind of pinch me moment like that happens, you realise, gosh, amazing things in life are possible despite the lows, despite the, the potential loss of hope. Brilliant things are possible. Jack, this has just been the loveliest moment to spend with you. I'm so excited about... Yeah, just people like you existing, doing good. And it, it's one of the reasons I love this podcast so much is to, it, it restores your faith. Not that I've actually lost faith, but restores your faith that there are powerful people doing good things. So thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you so much for, um, for creating this podcast. It's such an amazing group of people and I'm very honoured to be part of it, part of the family now. You're going to regret saying that because... I, yeah, you know. Anyway, but that's all right. You'll see. Um, now, listen, we're at the point of the podcast where I hand over. You remember what we mentioned, even though you obviously had a smile on your face the entire time that you wrote this, um, where I hand over to my guests to read out their letter to their younger self. And I don't know what you're going to say, but I just want to say thank you very much for sharing a little bit of your soul with me today. Thank you so much, Holly. When I wrote this, I had no idea how um, relevant and timely it would be to our conversation. Okay, so this is my letter to my younger self. I'm loath to write you a letter because I'm almost 100% sure you won't bother reading it. You are a complete nightmare, or rather, you're going through hell. A traumatic childhood of bullying leading to anxiety, to crippling depression, taking time off school, living in isolation, and ultimately giving up hope. I don't know what is keeping you going. Is it a rod of steel down your back? Doesn't sound likely or like me. Or do you sense a glimmer of hope just out of reach? Is that why you're keeping going? Is something sparkling in the corner of your eye? Oh dear, what is sparkling in the corner of your eye? You've come to believe that you're worthless, doomed, and you are overbrimming with shame and self-loathing. You're clinging onto a fantasy future which feels like the complete opposite of what you're experiencing now. Whilst you sit in grey, you're dreaming of gold. You're alone, but you're pining for friends. You're anonymous, fantasising about being famous, and for a while you'll get to experience this world you're dreaming of. And no wonder so many people, especially LGBTQ plus people, foster these fantasies. In a world that tells you you're nothing, we want to be everything. When we feel like nothing inside, we look for external signifiers to tell the world and ourselves we have meaning. We all do this. What do our clothes or our car or our job or our perfect family signify to the rest of the world? What are we covering up? I dreamt of beautiful people, of glamorous parties, of sitting close to the warm glow of fame. But little Jack, sweet little man, you'll come to realise that all that glitters is not gold. It's a cliché for a reason, my dear boy. Fame's flame is like a fickle, flickering outdoor pub heater, kicking off a bright red light but an inconsistent heat that only so many people can huddle around at once. Basically, everything you're dreaming of now and I understand why you're dreaming of it. 
It's an escape. It's a dream. It's a fantasy. But it's not real. Glimmer and shimmer is a trick of the light. But you will move through this into a place of meaning and solidity and clarity. Your career will take you through endless no's and slammed doors, but you'll carry on. Maybe you do have a rod of steel down your back. You'll drive forward. Just make sure your head isn't turned for too long by the unreal and know that soon and through lots of therapy, you'll learn to see and then accept and then even love yourself. And then you will turn to do the real work. You'll mend bonds with your biological family. You'll be accepted by your LGBTQ plus community, your new chosen family, and you'll step aside to tell their stories through the Queer Bible Project. You'll put them front and center. And trust me, you'll much prefer raising up others than focusing on yourself. So hold on. And even though it will feel so, so tempting, don't give up. Meaning and love and joy are all within your grasp. A life of connectedness, where you are you in relation to other people, as part of a community, a family is coming and you won't be alone in the dark anymore. Gosh. That's it. Jay, are you on like Calm app or something? I just want to hear your voice or something as I go to sleep. That was so frigging beautiful. And oh, thanks, Holly. why you did English Lit and got You're your so degree. You're so mean making me write that as well. It was I mean, intense. how stunningly beautiful and moving. And really, I mean it. This is the age. You've got the decades now with this wisdom and this experience or everything that you've got in your armory, in your rucksack. We need people like you to then go and do the right thing and go and change the world for us because we can't do it. It's only through your experience, everything that you've had in your life, do you get that opportunity. And I'm just going to watch with such, um, such pride, actually. I feel very emotional after that. Such pride that you're going to take all that you went through and we didn't cover, but I read when researching you for this podcast, you went through a huge amount but you're now going to use that and you're going to be changing the world for the better place. And I, and I really deeply thank you for that. Thank you, Holly. That really means a lot. Before you go, don't forget to head to adobe.com slash go slash Holly Tucker to find out how Adobe Express can fuel creativity in your business. And if you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. 